What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where each week we discuss an album in the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? We are turning a new page today and entering a new year for the show, which is 1995. X-Men Begins the Age of Apocalypse, WCW Monday Nitro premieres, and Fear Factory combines both of those events by unleashing the end of the world via a suplex off the top rope known as D-Manufacture. FF mastermind Dino Cazares is going to tell us all about making it and almost breaking it, but before that, another huge element of the sonic success of D-Manufacture was the addition of previous guest Reese Fulber. Reese gives us a peek behind the blue steel curtain of his involvement in the process. So after Millennium, you, through having done the remix EP of Fear Factory, you're called in to work on Demanufacture. And then I flew out with my gear to Bearsville, New York. And when I arrived, they were still tracking guitars. They were like behind schedule because they, you know, the infamous spending five days on a guitar tone thing went down. And so when I got there, they were way behind schedule. So I was there for most of the recording of the record, just waiting for my turn, you know? <laughs> right. So when I got there, Dina was still doing guitars. But I think I sat around there for at least two weeks before I played a note. And did um, they already have ideas of things they wanted you to do? Or did you have ideas? You know, uh, you mentioned having already heard a couple of the songs. But yeah, I had like a bunch of ideas for Body Hammer already and I think they just let me do my thing and, and then they would have comments here and there. But I mean, I remember doing keyboards at the studio. Most of the time I was in the room by myself with Steve Harris, the engineer, most of the time. And then I think Dina would come in and listen to stuff. And, you know, I remember Raymond wanted me to sample a bunch of sounds off his 3DO system, which I did, which are on D manufacture. The uh, opening samples and stuff are taken from some game in there and stuff and then manipulated. But I think I just kind of did my thing and then they would have comments here and there. Colin was never around for any of the keyboards, which I, I like Colin. He's a nice guy, but I found it unusual that the producer really, I don't think he wanted me there. <laughs> well, he probably really didn't want you there at the end when you ended up remixing everything he did. I mean, I've seen Colin at a studio in England way way later and i said hi and he was he's friendly i mean i like Colin is, is is a good producer he's a good engineer he's a good guy i just think you know sometimes everyone has different ideas on how things should be and it's it's never anything personal or anything like that like dino and colin had two completely different ideas of how that record was going and that became very apparent 
not long after I was there. So I was just doing the keyboards on my own. And, you know, he, he, I guess he took some days off or something because I never saw Colin once. I, was, I hardly recall being in the studio with Colin in the room, if I think about it. You know, I was pretty much left to my own devices for all that. And then at some point during the recording, Dino takes me aside into a, a smaller room at the studio and says, I don't like where the record's going. I want to take the record back to L.A. and have you and Greg really finish the record. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm not going to undermine the producer and stuff. I mean, I was only like 23 at the time, I think. They had some sounds they wanted to put in. But I think a lot of it, I just was just in there. The the big thing on Demanufacture, I remember, was I I made them change Piss Christ. And what do you mean you made them change it? Like rearrange it or rewrite yeah, it? Yeah, like put a whole new part in because I was doing the keyboard. I, you know, I figured out pretty early on with Fear Factory that if I follow and support the vocals, that's kind of an, that's something I figured out pretty quick. I go like, okay, what am I going to do on this? All right. You know, I can't clutter this up. It's like. It's guitar-driven music. So I'll work with the vocals. I'll keep the keyboards and the vocals and turn them into one kind of unit. That's the thing I figured out fairly quickly. So I started following what Bert was doing and then adding a little, you know, extra harmony or things with just, you know, keyboard melodies. And it also gave the vocals more of a lift and made it more ethereal and all that, kind of enhancing what was already there, you know. And then so I was using that technique on Piss Christ, which is not the version you hear, because the version you hear is the changed version. But previously, there was a different vocal melody on Piss Christ. And when I started following the vocal melody, I was like, hey, uh, this is a major on top of a minor, and this doesn't work. And everyone's looking at me like I'm out of my mind. And (laughs) they're like, well, what are you talking about? I go, well, listen, here's the guitar. And I played the guitar riff. And then here's the vocal, and I put them together. And then when you put it on keyboards, everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Because when guitars are tuned low like that, it's sometimes hard to hear what exactly the notes are. In and Fear you, Factory, they're even like more compressed than a lot of guitars are too, right? Well, it's, it's like something I found working with metal is it, it's, it's hard to find notes sometimes, you know? That's why it's good to do the bass second when you do metal records because you always – everyone's tuned down so low and the strings are flapping all over the place and stuff doesn't stay in tune as well. So it's hard to um, line everything up. So it's, it's something that can easily happen, you know? And so I was like, uh, these parts don't fit together. You know, this is weird. You know, this musically is a complete clash. So we rewrote the vocal melody to be a minor on top of a minor guitar riff. So, it's the end of the song. Um, the where is your savior now part is the main part. I remember that we changed. And that came from me doing the keyboards and finding out that the two parts weren't musically playing harm- harmoniously. That was the one time where I was like, I didn't really think about it because I just said it. But then when I think back, I'm like, that's sort of when I started upsetting things probably a little bit with, but not intentionally, just like, hey, I'm trying to do my thing and I can't because these things don't work. You know, so that was one of the big changes I remember was um, the piss Christ thing. Yeah, it's almost like an objective thing that you're bringing in, right? You're saying this is this musically does not make sense. <laughs> so, it doesn't make sense. The synth line in New Breed is so, you know, like uh, different than any of the other stuff they did before. Really anything else on that album. 
Dino and Raymond loved rave music. So they wanted like some rave synth riff on there. So that's where that came from. They, they like loved, like when I first met, this is something I got to go back to. I first met Dino in eight, in 93, when we were going to do fears of my killer and Dino came up to Vancouver because he wanted to talk to me about his ideas and what, and, and when Dino came up in 1993, he played me the prodigy and he played me Messiah who are like another sort of rave type group. And that's what he was into. I mean, he liked industrial, he liked skinny puppy and, you know, God flesh and all that. But he also loved like prodigy, like old prodigy is like total fast breakbeat rave music. Right. right. And he liked all that stuff and he wanted all of that in there. So new breed is like, we want like a rave riff in there. Like, like when you hear rave music from the early nineties, it's all those bendy, uh, bright synth sounds. And that's kind of what that was as well. That's what they wanted in there. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's got that like sandstorm sound. to Yeah, it. that's what they wanted. That's what they wanted. That, that was like one time they were like, this is what we want. We want like a kind of a rave kind of thing in there. And I go, okay, no problem. Like demanufacturing obsolete. There's no pro tools on those records. And is that just because of the the time and place that they were made during, or it was deliberate, like we don't want to... We weren't using it yet, you know? Like, the only guys that were using Pro Tools heavily, like Bob Rock on Black Album, you know, like, because he had Scott Humphreys in a room doing it all day long, and, you know, that's a bigger production with more money. We we weren't there yet, and we just, just not how we worked. We just recorded it all the tape, and, you know, I would just sit there listening to, you know, every four bars and making sure it was right and having, you know, everybody play, you know? So we, we just, using Pro Tools heavily was not until Digimortal. And as, as I've gotten older, I've gotten way more sympathetic to difficult personalities because I'll start thinking, rather than just thinking this person's a jerk, I'll start thinking something happened to this person, you know? Something happened to them to make them this way because the default setting is not that is that why you think you get along with dino so well Dino's not difficult to work with dino tells you what he's thinking he tells you what's on his mind and a lot of people that's too much for some people if dino isn't the way dino is d manufacture never happens it never happens he never gets me and greg to change the record around it never sets that bar for what it became it, it it's never the record it is without Dino being the way he is and saying, no, I want it this way. This is what I believe in. It's called, it's, it, he's passionate. Passion is not a bad thing. Passion can ruffle feathers. It can step on toes, but it's not a bad thing. The root is true belief in what he is doing and trying to achieve. That's passion. And that's what every great artist should have. And once they lose it, the, the artistic output suffers. So that's what he has. He had a passion and a, a vision for something. And he was right. That's the thing. He was obviously right. Well, not a much better intro I can give this man than that, but I'll try. Dino is a guitar idol with a succinct signature sound you immediately recognize. But how did he get that sound? And who had to spill coffee and cocaine all over a soundboard to get him there? Well, I'll let him tell you. Of course, this album is known for a lot of things. It's one of the more successful albums to really incorporate the electronics into metal. Of course, it's his big landmark. Uh, You have the 
clean vocals with the aggressive vocals and everyone thinks about that. But one thing that I was really thinking about with this album that I don't feel like gets brought up enough and really I almost never hear it get brought up, but I feel like in modern times it means more than ever is, you know, you're influenced by uh, Terminator, of course, and like video games and, and also metal fans. And, you know, that like nerd culture that's Comic-Con and like, you know, takes over the world now where Marvel movies is everything. That wasn't the case in 95. You guys were really uniting groups of people that were kind of more disenfranchised back then that maybe didn't feel as represented, you know, with with music because it was kind of like, you know, not as it wasn't as cool as it is now to to like those kind of things. You know, video gaming wasn't the everyday Twitch multi-million dollar industry then that it is now. So I think that's an important Part of it was that something that you were into back then like were you really into gaming were you really into terminator for example the thing that i remember most about terminator is i was pretty young when that movie came out but i have every terminator 2 toy that you can imagine i got my man on the motorcycle i got him in a car that i don't even remember being in the movie so like were you into you know like what would be considered nerd culture back then so i was definitely into comic books definitely into anything that was sci sci-fi you know what i mean Terminator, Star Trek, Twilight Zone, you know, anything with those kind of science fiction stories. Of course, movies as it got, as, you know, it, as it went from television shows to movies, Terminator, Blade Runner, Mad Max, you know, all those kind of movies really definitely shaped the concept of Fear Factory. We've always been about science fiction, but at the same time, we've always been about futuristic ideas and forward thinking and, you know, and those also came from books as well. And we just wanted to, you know, create a story of what Fear Factory means. Now, Fear Factory is obviously anything that creates fear, right? So, or manufactures fear. Um, and it could be everything from government, to school, to church, religion, uh, technology. Technology being one, one of the big ones as well. And um, we really latched onto the technology part. Now... Now that we had the concept and that we had the idea, we had to create the sound, right? We were very much influenced by the early industrial bands. Of course, Frontline Assembly, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, KMFDM, and it goes on and on and on. So like, okay, how do we incorporate those sounds and, you know, kind of like our thrash metal kind of vibe? How do we combine those two, you know, and make it even more appealing to maybe both genres? So... In 1992, when we did our first record, Soul of a New Machine, you know, it was basically the birth of our sound, right? But obviously, we didn't have the money or the technology to go out and buy all these machines and Akaius 1000 samplers and, you know, all these different keyboards. We didn't have that kind of money. So we were kind of just like pretending to be the machine, trying to be as tight as possible. So we tried to write songs that sounded like a loop because we couldn't actually loop it on a sampler. We just played it like a loop. When we went to Fears the Mind Killer, which was the remix EP that Bill Lieb and Reese Fulber did for us. Now, uh, how that happened was back in 1992, I was in England and I met the guy from Third Mind Records. Greg Lambert Monty Connor hooked me up with him because I told Monty Connor, I spoke to him and I said, look, I would love to do remixes. And he's like, what's that? You know, this is a metal label. And I sent, him, I sent him a few examples, and he's like, oh, wow, this sounds really cool. Yeah, let's, he goes, let's do it. And he goes, I think you should talk to the guy from Third Mind Records when you're out there in, in England. And so I spoke to him, and he's like, you need to meet a guy named Reese Fulber. 
I'm like, okay. I go, let's call him. I was in England and I said, let's get him on the phone now, you know? <laughs> so he goes, okay. And so we actually called Reese from England. He was in Canada and we spoke and, you know, we had a really good conversation. When I got back from England, I was like, you know, I pushed the record company. Let's do this. Let's do this. And I go, let's use this guy, Reese Fulber. Monty, Monty Connor was like, okay, let's use Reese. So I spoke to Reese on the phone a few more times. We, we picked what songs we wanted to remix. And I said, go to town. Don't, like, don't let me hold you back. Go to town. So Reese is like, well, maybe you should come out to Canada and uh, we can you know, work on it together. And I said, okay. So I flew out to Canada, to Vancouver, Canada. And they wouldn't let me in the country because I had a, 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 a criminal record. <laughs> okay. It was a vandalism charge that I got when I was a kid. But for some reason, it came up on the system and Canada was like, well, we can only let you stay in one night and that's it. And then the next morning, you got to get out. And I was supposed to stay there for a week. And I was supposed to stay at Reese's house, at Reese's house with his dad. So got into Canada for one night, went to Reese's house, stayed there. We kind of talked about a few things. You know, I wrote down my ideas. So three of the songs came out how they envisioned it. You know, I let him, I let him run free on those songs. But I said, there's one song in particular called Scapegoat. And I want you to keep the same structure, but just add your elements on top of the song, right? And from that song, because the structure was the same, it didn't change what the band did. He added the, he added the electronic elements on top of that. And I was like, that's it. That is what Fear Factory needs to be right there. Reese and, uh, Reese and Bill nailed it. They nailed it. And I was like, that's what we need to sound. So when it came to D-Manufacture, when we started the writing process, um, you know, we, made, we had Reese come down into the studio and start writing stuff on top of it. And so we were, we were actually writing parts for the keyboards. So what were some of the songs that you first wrote with that sound in mind? Well, we wrote the, we wrote the album pretty quickly. We, had, we wrote, uh, within three months, we had pretty much the album already written. So obviously, D-Manufacture, South Byers' Resistor, Replica, and I think Piss Christ. There was a lot of songs that didn't make it on the record. There was a handful of songs that we never recorded. And you said you were writing these songs with the keyboard in mind and, and the electronics and things like that. So when he got there, you already had certain songs. Where, like Body Hammer has, of course, that anvil sound that you know, everyone remembers. So is that something that you were like, hey, make sure you put an anvil here? That was. I took the anvil idea from A Thousand Homo DJs, which is, um, uh, was one of Al Jorgensen's. So before the song he did, he did a cover song of Black Sabbath on that record called Supernaut. And, and before the song starts, there's this little, little anvil kind of drum beat loop that starts before the song. It's fun to take a trip. Put acid in your veins. I was like, that anvil sounds really cool, man. I think it would work great in body hammer. And that's how I got the idea for that song. Oh, that's sick. I mean, that's, that anvil, you know, makes the song. Like, it just makes you feel those, those hits every time. You know? Exactly, exactly. I love that. And, um, you know, Reese also had floppy disks and dats <laughs> of recorded audio from movies. And so we would, sometimes I would sit there listening to them and be like, oh, that sounds cool, whatever that is. It sounds cool. And then 
He's like, okay, let's try it. We would try it in the song, but the manufacturer had a lot of sounds from the movie Terminator and it had, had a lot of video game sounds as well. Yeah, so you guys have zero signal on the Mortal Kombat, the movie soundtrack, which of course is based on the video game Mortal Kombat. But that mm-hmm. soundtrack came out on TVT. You're on Roadrunner. So how did that relationship even happen? Oh, actually, just before we went in to um, record the album, the movie company that was putting it on reached out to the record company and said, look, we want, we want Fear Factory to be on this thing. Can they write a song for us? We said, yes, we'll write a song for it. And we wrote a song called self Bias Resistor. We're like, oh, it's a perfect song. That'd be great. Fucking ripping. It's cool. It's fun to play. But they ended up choosing Zero Signal. Yeah, because after we recorded the album, we go, here's, here's the song we wrote for you, Self Bias Resistor. We're like, oh, we like the other song better. <laughs> so we're just going to take that one. We're like, okay. So they ended up taking that one, and um, it worked out great. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I remember that's the having the cassette of that soundtrack, which actually came in a little little cardboard box that opened up like a cigarette pack. But that was the first time I ever heard Fear Factory was that song on the soundtrack. And I'm sure that's a lot of people's story, right? I feel like you probably heard that in your whole career. Yes, a lot of people really. It, that record, because it sold a million copies, you know, got us uh, a lot of exposure. And I didn't know until years later that the the main theme, you know, that everybody knows that is Lords of Acid under like a different name. That song was really popular. Right. Oh, that's you know, what was, got me to buy the tape. I was like, I got to play this, <laughs> this little beep beeps on my ghetto yeah, blaster did you, every day. Did you know the rest of the album was going to be metal? No, I had no idea. I bought it for that song. I don't know. And to me, because Fear Factory and the other bands on there, like Pitch Shifter and stuff like that, all had those electronic things. I'm thinking these are all just Mortal Kombat songs. Then I, would be, I saw the replica video on 120 Minutes. I was like, oh, okay, this is Mortal Kombat band. They're actually another band. But no, I had no idea. Almost every band that's on that tape, I went on to be a big fan of, you know? So it's crazy how, how big of an influence those things were. Soundtracks and things like that, you know, rarely we see it now. Yeah, it definitely got us a, a lot of exposure, a lot. And a lot of people started, we, no, we noticed the growth just from that soundtrack. And then from there, we got into a lot of movies from a demanufacturer and remanufacturer and Fear is the Mind Killer. All three of those records were in a lot of movies and a lot of video games, shit ton of video games. I can't even tell you how many video games we were on. Video game developers just reach out to you and like, hey, we heard your song. Can we put it in our game? I mean, it, it, was, it actually took a little bit of work from the band. Actually, uh, our drummer, Raymond, was really into, really super into video games. And he started to network at all those conventions, like the E3 convention, the video game convention. So he was really networking there. And he was giving, he was giving video game developers instrumental versions of Fear Factory. He also had a card on there. And the card said, hey, reach out to Raymond, blah, 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 blah. Also part of Roadrunner Records. So when the video game companies you know, reached out to Raymond, he put them in, co- in contact with the record company so the record company can do the licensing deal and all that stuff, right? So that really, really helped develop Fear Factory into the video game world, big time. Do you hear similar stories from people like that? Like uh, we just said about all the, the Mortal Kombat soundtrack? They're like, oh, I played whatever. All the time, all the time. Well, I played this game, I saw you guys in it, or I, or I heard the music and I didn't know who it was. You know, then I looked at the credits later on and found out who it was, you know. Um, but we always did deals with the companies. Like if you're going to, if our song comes on at a certain level in the game, somewhere on the corner on the bottom, it's going to say music by Fear Factory. Then they go look it up. They like it. 
they're obviously playing the game and the music goes along with the game. So you kind of subconsciously that song gets in your head, right? Right. And so then people are like, hey, I like that song. And they go look it up. I'm like, oh, that's what it is. Cool, man. Oh, this band's badass. And, blah. and then from there, it just grew. And then it, it, it came to the point where we were specifically writing music for video games. So there's like video game exclusive songs because video games even had soundtracks there for a while. I mean, I know they have soundtracks now, but you know what I mean? Like they promoted them like they do movie soundtracks and things like that. I remember I had the, the backyard wrestling. You know, video games don't have a really long shelf life, right? Video games, sometimes people conquer them in one day. You know what I mean? They're like, well, what's next? You know? So our licensing deals were only for like six months. So after six months, we could do whatever we wanted with the song. And so what we did is we just released them later as bonus tracks on our records. Now with uh, the video game thing that you're talking about, that lower third with your name, I mean, that's so smart because I, I famously remember, I don't know if you remember this, but like O2, Pepsi Blue comes out, right? It's this blue cotton candy drink. And they have this band that had just signed. They were the first signing from Farm Club. Remember that show? Mm -hmm. So it's the first band they signed on Farm Club. They're called Sev. And they get this big deal with Pepsi Blue. They're in the commercial. They're playing their song. Doesn't have their name on the whole commercial. They never saw one single influx of sale or anything because nobody knew who it was. They just knew the song. Yeah. So that, that was something that we learned early on. It's like, look, oh, we're playing the video game, but it doesn't say who the, who the, who the band is. So how does anybody know what it is, Right. People would have to wait till the, they finish the game or at the end of the credits or look somewhere on the booklet and try to find it. So we were like, well, f well let's, let's make it easier for them. Let's make a deal with the video game company that whenever our song comes on, we put our name on the bottom corner. And that was it. And then I, later on, I noticed that the Grand Theft Auto, when you, get, when you got in the car, a radio would go on. Like, you know, you could play music in a radius and they would say the name of the band. Tony Hawk had a, had a few punk bands and stuff like that. Yeah, I was just thinking that was my first thought when you were talking about the songs and video games. As you know, there's Goldfinger, who, of course, John Feldman has gone on to be producer, superstar. Their song mm -hmm. Superman is in one of the Tony Hawks, and people know that's They might not know another Goldfinger song, but they know the name Goldfinger, and they know that they did the song <laughs> for Tony Correct. Hawk. Correct. Correct. And so we got a lot of exposure that way because, again, like I said, we weren't on radio. We weren't on rock radio, you know, play, played on AM, FM radio and just – we weren't that kind of band, but the video game really exposed us to a lot of kids. A lot of, you know, if you want to, for lack of a better term, yeah, nerdy kids, which right. is really cool because we, we really connected with them because conceptually, you can kind of say the concept was kind of, you know, nerdy in a way, you know? So people, people would, for some reason, always ask us, hey, do you play Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't. Of course, the album famously has a narrative and becomes part of a trilogy. Are you working with Burton at the time to kind of match the sounds with whatever story he's trying to tell with the, the songs? Well, Demanufacture, the concept of Demanufacture, obviously, you know, takes place in Los Angeles, right? Because um, that's, that's where we lived. So within a few years, from 1992 to 1995, a lot of things happened within that time. The Rodney King riots massive fires then we had the massive rain that when the rain came down it created mudslides and just took people's houses away while they were in the house you see houses floating down the road because the mud and rain took them then we saw that we had a massive earthquake in 94 january 94 
and we just saw the city crumble, you know? So we saw all this destruction in Los Angeles within a matter of three, three years, three, four years. So I was like, wow, you know, this is like, it's just a massive demanufacturer of our city. And I was like, hey, great title. I looked up the word demanufacture, it doesn't exist. I was like, that's a perfect title. It, you you kind of know what it means. Right. Right? But, is it really, but it wasn't in the dictionary at the time. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. Maybe, maybe I was thinking like after I, I said it's a perfect name, but at the same time I was thinking like, well, if it doesn't exist in the, in the dictionary, maybe it's going to make me look stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like that you don't know that it's not a word? Yeah, but, you know, we're like, let's use it anyways. We know what it means. And so just from the title of the record, we built a concept around it. And the first line you hear, the first lyric you hear, desensitized to the values of life. And we saw that in Los Angeles. We just saw the destruction of Los Angeles, the racism, you know, uh, fires, the floods, the earthquakes, the National Guard being on our streets. You had to be in lockdown at 8 p.m. You know, we just saw that and we're like, holy shit. We're seeing people shooting each other literally in front of our faces. We, we could hear bullets whiz by you know when somebody you hear a shot you hear the bullets whiz by we're like oh my god where are those bullets going we we could they got to be close if you hear them you know what i mean <laughs> that's terrifying so yeah th that was during the riots and we were like 1992 riots and um we we're like wow you know we just it's just the city was falling apart but we also added uh you know a character you know like a kyle reese from Terminator, <laughs> right. you know, who, or, or John Connor character who started this, you know, subculture of guys that are fighting against the system, Skynet, you know what I mean? Fighting against the technology because they see that technology is taking over and that it's in the wrong hands and that they believe that they need to destroy it before it takes over. That's pretty much what demanufacture was about. Did you know at the time that you were going to continue this story on other albums or just kind of that idea came later? I knew, we knew from the, we knew from the very beginning of when we came up with the name Fear Factory that we were going to make a story. Sure, we didn't exactly pull it off on our first record, but the title is the story, Soul of a New Machine. It's the birth of the concept, this mechanical concept, this futuristic concept that what we were that we wanted to sing about, but there's always the the human aspect of it as well. You know what I mean? So obviously later on, it's become you know a merger between man and machine, transferring our memories into you know a, a, an automaton. So later on, it gets into that like Digimortal, and then mechanized, and and the industrialist, and obviously Genexus, and it goes further and further and further. So you've got the idea for the story, you've got the name, you've got, you're saying you, the songs came together pretty quickly. You seem like a, a person that definitely is very hands-on with their art and with their songs and music and everything like that. You want to be a part of all the process. You want to make sure your vision is seen through. Uh, Dave McKean did the cover for this album, and I've talked to other bands that he did albums for. for Reese, you know, they did the, he did the Frontline Assembly album. Mm -hmm. But most mm -hmm. of those bands, if not all of them that I've talked to, seem to have just been their kind of given 
the artwork and they're like, oh, that's cool. We'll use it. But they don't really give Dave any ideas. Did you work with Dave to conceptualize? Oh my God. We, 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 we pissed them off a few times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we first heard of Dave from Roadrunner Records because they were using them on a couple of other bands. I want to say Cynic, Disincarnate. That was the first one, yeah. And then they did Machine Heads, Burn My Eyes, right before they did yours, and then Frontline. So they recommended Dave McKeon, and we knew him from the comic book world. Sandman. I just remember Bert being really excited because he was really into the comic book, the Sandman, whatever it was called. Yeah. But I was the one who kind of gave Dave McKeon, I talked to him on the phone, and I gave him some ideas on what we wanted. So one of the first sketches that Dave did was there was this conveyor belt of humans that were going into this kind of box and they came out robots, right? That was one of the early sketches that he did. And we're like, that's eh, too obvious. <laughs> too on the nose. We said no. So we rejected it. We rejected it. Then he came up with a few other ideas. It kind of looked like a doctor. It kind of looked like the, like the million dollar man where – a doctor was working on a guy and making him biomechanical. Like, nah, too obvious. Then he came out with this sketch. Well, actually he said, well, this is the last time. After this, if I don't get it, then I'm not working with you guys anymore. Uh, so I said, come on, please, just please, please, let's just do it. And I, I pretty much begged him and he goes, okay. So he came up with this sketch. I go, look, we don't want it to be so obvious. We don't want it to be, you know, we want it to be biomechanical, but we don't want it to be, um, something as obvious as a human going into this machine and coming out a robot. I go, we want something where there is man and machine merging together and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, okay. So he did through this sketch and it was a barcode and a rib cage and a spine. And we were like, that's it. And then Dave's really good at merging photos together. That's what it is. These are photos that he put together. And so he did this, put together these photos and he sent it to us, and we're like, holy fuck, our jaw dropped. We're like, that's it. Simple, but to the point, and it, the image says it all. We even told him, don't put nothing in the background, just the image. Just the image, because we think that if you make it too busy, it's, it's going to be too much. So it's just keep it simple. The minute you see it, you recognize it, you know it. You know that's Fear Factory. Those colors became our colors, like the bluish, purple, cold steel kind of uh, colors. And those became our signature. It became our signature look, to be honest with you. A lot of things we did were in the blue, in the blue type of blues, right? And that was it, man. And Dave McKeon, you know, uses it now still. Actually, he just asked for our approval if he could put it in a new book, like a new coffee book that he's doing with all his images and artwork. The coolest thing about it is that it looks like the album sounds, you know what I mean? Like you, it, it totally. adds to the experience. When you're listening to that album and you're looking at that cover, you feel like you're in this world. You hear, you hear that anvil. <laughs> so sick. So you uh, start working on the album, of course, this is kind of the story of the album, but you are working on it with Colin Richardson and then eventually Reese takes over. You worked with Colin before on Soul of a New Machine, right? Yep. And you already were having, I think, conflict with Colin even before Reese shows up as far as your guitar tone, right? You're having this issue where you can't kind of get the right. So when you're working on Soul of a New Machine, are there already kind of, not to say anything, but Colin's a great producer, and I'm sure you agree with that. But were you already having strains with him on Soul of a New Machine that carried over into D-Manufacture? No. 
Okay. We had no issues with him during solo in the machine at all whatsoever. When we started uh, with D manufacturer, I kind of had my doubts because mentally we were already on to the next thing. You know, Reese, we were kind of looking at Reese as like the fifth member, but at the same time we were looking at him as he was going to bring what we want. He was going to bring the sound that we wanted because he already did it on Fears the Mind Killer. So here, you know, me and Reese were already seeing eye to eye, doing a lot of communication back and forth about what was going to be put on the record and things like that. So when we went in to do D-Manufacture with Colin, we, we initially started at Chicago Tracks. Uh, bands like Ministry and a lot of industrial bands recorded there. The guys, some of the guys in Skinny Puppy did projects there. And you know, a, lot of, uh, a lot of industrial bands came through there, through that studio, mainly Ministry. So we were like, okay, we're going to go to the birth of industrial metal. We're going to go... We're going to go where they made those records and we're going to sound just like that. Right? So we get there and it's a shithole. <laughs> we had no idea. We had no idea what it was going to be like. We were just excited. We were young. We were in our mid, we were in our early twenties. We were just excited. We're like, hell yeah. So we get there, we start recording the drums and the computer kept crashing. But then channels on the board were starting to crackle. So whenever we were recording drums, you can hear the electronic crackle. Cause you know, it's like if you push a fader and it goes, you know, yeah, yeah. kind of get that, kind of get that dirty, dusty noise out of it. Right. Well, that was coming through the drum sounds, the drum takes, it was coming through those little crackly sounds. We need to fix this board. Well, one of the guys that works there said, well, there's probably not a lot of good channels left. And I'm like, we're like, what? I go, what do you mean there's not a lot of good channels left? Yeah, you know, uh, Al Jorgensen, you know, he's done many of Coke. He spent, he spilled so much beer. He's done so much Coke and coffee and alcohol has <laughs> been spilt on this board. And no one's ever really maintained it. And we're like, oh, my God. Then we saw drug deals going inside the studio, like in the hallways, People were dealing drugs and stuff and hounding us if we wanted drugs. And we're like, uh, no, we don't want those kind of drugs. And we, th- we, we just pretty much said, we need to get out of here. We need to get out of this place. We got out of there and they hooked us up with a, with a studio uh, in Bearsville, New York, which is next to Woodstock. Population of like maybe 50,000 people. Bearsville, even less, maybe 10,000. It's the connecting little town. But they had a very big studio there where a lot of big artists recorded there. The studio had a house to where artists could stay at. And it was off property. So when we got there, we were like, wow, this place is is beautiful. It's perfect. So we were in Studio A. We did the drum tracks. No issues. Great. Everything was fucking working. (laughs) We're like night and day, right? Night and day. Then it, then it came to my guitars. That, that was next that we were going to record. And um, Colin Richardson didn't like what I was using. He didn't like my JCM 800 Marshall modified amp. Said it sounded like crap. <laughs> so he suggested that I use a 5150 with the tube screamer going into some other cabinet. And I said, 
I can't use that because a lot of the bands I know use that. Machine Head used that, Carcass, many other bands. That was like everybody's thing back then. That was the sound. I think my own individual sound and tone, and I don't want to sound like everybody else. So we got into an argument, and we wasted a week's worth of studio time arguing about this. But luckily, down the street, I ran into a guy named Dr. No, who was a guitar player from Bad Brains. And I didn't know who he was. I mean, he looked, I recognized him. And then we started talking and I, he said he was Dr. No. And I said, oh man, I was like blown away. Like, you know, cause I love bad brains. I, uh, I told him my problems and he's like, well, I, I think I can help you. And he's, he let me borrow some speaker cabinets and some Mesa boogie heads. He said, he just got these. These are brand new. So try them up. So he actually drove his truck with the stuff in the back of his truck, we unloaded it, and I was just like still blown away. I couldn't believe it. So we tried my Marshall head with a Mesa Boogie cabinet, and luckily, finally, Colin said, that sounds amazing. Let's, let's stick with that. But I was like ready to slap him in the back of his head because I was so pissed off that we wasted a week's worth of time. So what are you and doing this week? Are you just trying out different sounds or something, trying to come to some sort of compromise? different mic placements, different speaker cameras, blah, 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 all kinds of shit. And, you know, I got the band member guys looking at me like, uh, time is money. What the fuck's, what the fuck's, what the, they're blaming me. Like time is money. I go, it's not me. I already got my shit. It's him, you know? <laughs> so we were kind of like doing that thing. It was kind of getting ridiculous. So finally we, we got something that he liked that he could work with. And so we recorded the classic guitar tone, classic D manufacturer guitar tone and you know thanks to dr no uh for saving saving that part of the record you know i tried to give give him money but he wouldn't take it he <laughs> said he said it's just brotherly love musicians helping out musician that was what he said but uh yeah that was the first argument that we had with colin later on it turned out that i i could see that he didn't really know what to do with Reese's keyboards. You know, me and Reese were having these conversations where like, we didn't feel that Colin was going to get this because there's a lot of keyboards on that record. There's a lot of stuff. And we just didn't know, he, we, we didn't think he knew in the mix where, where to place it. So Reese was already talking to me about a guy named Greg Reilly. We were already having those conversations during the record, during the recording. So we had a big falling out. I had a big falling out with Colin because his wife, kept interrupting the sessions in the studio. We would say, look, we need to finish this record, man. It's costing a lot of, lot of money. At, at that time, we already wasted money being at Chicago, Chicago tracks, going to upstate New York. Uh, you know, we've already wasted a lot of money. The label was, a, we were probably already at that time about $100,000 in the hole. Insane back amount of money. <laughs> back, back when there was budgets like that. Right. Luckily, the label, the label believed in us, and they were, they were giving us money to support the, the album. We need to hurry this along. And Colin Richardson's wife, she was actually a good friend of ours before, like back in the late 80s, and she actually helped the band get signed. She managed the band for a minute until she met Colin Richardson on the first record, and she married him. Love Factory. So I was having a falling out with Colin and his wife because we had fired her before that. So 
I don't know if she was purposely interrupting the studio sessions, but she, you know, some stuff went down. I wasn't very happy with it. Colin took her side, which I understand it's his wife, of course. But what Colin did is Colin went to the record label and said, look, I don't want Dino there during, during the mix sessions. He can't be in there. So everybody agreed on that. Um, except me and Reese. Reese is like, it's a big mistake. This is a big mistake. And so Colin took all the tapes and flew to, back, flew to England, took the tapes to England and started mixing the record there in England. And Bert went with him as well. And um, so, uh, uh, sorry, Reese was like, dude, this is not going to turn out well. I can tell. I know. It's not going to be well. You know, Reese just saw the vision that I saw. And I didn't know what to do about it at the time. And Reese goes, well, I got a guy named Greg Greeley that can mix this record. He mixed Fears the Mind Killer. And I was like, that's what we got to do. I was, in my, I was convinced that's what we got to do. How do I convince the label? They already spent a hundred grand. So I called up Monty Connor from, a from Roadrunner Records. And I said, look, if this guy, if Colin Richardson sends the mix back and it sounds not like we want it to. And I explained to Monty exactly what me and Reese thought was going to happen with the mixes. And what we thought was Colin was going to bury the keyboards. You know, he wasn't going to use any of the drum samples that we wanted to use. And we were right. So when I called Monty and I said, look, this is what, this is what we think is going to happen. And if it comes back sounding exactly what we say it's going to sound, you're going to have to let me take over. Let, let me and Reese take over and bring in a guy named Greg really to mix the record. So we convinced the label that if the mixes came back the way we described them from Colin Richardson, that we were going to be able to take over the record. So lo and behold, the mixes came back and they were exactly like we said they were going to be. Exactly. And like Keyboards you said from earlier, Monty's already on board with this whole new sound, right? Because you play him the remixes. You're like, oh, this is cool, right? So he wants it. He wants your vision to be fulfilled. He's not looking to have this guitar-driven record that Colin's making. Correct. And Monty is like, go for it. We're going to support it. Go for it. So we got the tapes back from England. And Bert came back from England, flew back. And we picked a studio literally across the street from where I live now. It was called the Enterprise Studios, and it was owned by one of the kids that came, back, came out on Star Trek. Hence the name. And each room was named after Star Trek. So everybody, everything came back to L.A. We flew in Greg, really. We flew in Reese Fulber, and the minute that Greg came in, we got into the studio. He got all his gear set up. Reese got all his gear set up, all these samplers and just things, and and I was like, the first thing Greg did was pulled up those drums and started adding all the samples, the kick and snare samples. And basically, Reese, Reese created the kick sample from a mesh of a bunch of kicks that he put together. And it became pretty much our signature sound, you know, when it came to the drums. So the minute I heard the drums, you know, being edited and, and fixed up, I was like, wow it's going to fucking be amazing. That's just the drums. <laughs> and then when Greg started putting in the guitar and he started EQing the guitar, 
And I was going, wow, it's going to, it's right then and there. This is the dream. This is the dream coming true. You know, somebody who gets your vision, somebody that, you know, a lot of it was Reese's vision too. Obviously they already had done millennium, which was definitely influenced by fear of mind killer. I think both records, millennium and D manufacture were a direct, I believe it was a direct influence of what we did with Fears the Mind Killer. Yeah, for sure. They're, they almost are all like a, a unit together, all three of those albums. Or, yeah. And even Remanufacture, because, you know, Reese does so many remixes on that. So, Yeah. Well, you, hear, you can hear the influences on all, all those records. You can hear that there was a merger in styles and sounds and tones and ideas. You can hear it. Reese probably didn't say this, but I was originally supposed to one going to Canada before Devin did that. But you couldn't but, get in because of the criminal charge? Exactly. Man. So Devin took over, which is great, because Devin did an amazing job. And he's a very talented guy in general. So again, when Greg came over and just started putting piecing this record together and started tone shaping the album, we were like, I was just like, fuck. And then the keyboards were not buried. They're up front. They were exactly where they needed to be. And this was like instant gratification, instant, just like, this is it. We created a masterpiece of what modern metal and industrial electronic elements put together should sound like next to the Millennium Record. Then we went on to do Obsolete, which is a whole other story. Because D-Manufacture definitely had a cold feel to it. It was like, okay, man and machine have become one. You can hear that. You could see that. And you felt that. And you, you, know, you could read that as well. You felt it. You felt it. And the thing about D-Manufacture, when we went in to record the album, on Soul of a New Machine, it was like, just go. Just play. You know, <laughs> and just no click track. You know, there's nothing like that. We didn't follow any click tracks. Just go. Only on a couple of songs we did. Self-immolation. Anyway, so. No we triggers on Soul of a New Machine either? Yes, there's triggers. Okay. Only on the kicks, right? So, so when we went to do D-Manufacture, we're like, okay, we're going to do everything with a click track. So we picked one tempo for every song. Most industrial bands, it's just one tempo, right? So we just picked one tempo when we wrote songs in that way. So it just has a cold feel. There's no ups and downs. There's no plateaus. There's nothing, right? It's just like, I think that added a little bit to the coldness as well, too. Now, on D-Manufacture, people didn't think it was a real band. People thought it was a drum machine, looped guitars, and blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't. It was everybody playing. So we wanted to kind of prove everybody wrong a little bit. So we decided to go for more organic tones, purposely organic tones on Obsolete. Now, during, during Fears the Mind Killer, I'm going to tell you nothing about Reese and Bill. During Fears the Mind Killer, when I had that one day with him, I got to go into their, their lair, their studio, and there was fucking shit everywhere. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, there's every kind of sampler, keyboards, wires, cables. You name it, going into stuff, I had no idea what the fuck it was. And it was, like, amazing. That's actually what I picture, just, like, a room full of wires everywhere. And just like... It was just like that. It was just like that. I wish I would have had an iPhone back then to take a picture, right? But we, we didn't really. But, yeah, that was cool. But then Reese's studio now here in L.A. is kind of like that. When we were doing demanufacture, we were taking stuff from movies and video games and things like that. But... 
we went into obsolete. Reese is like, fuck that. We're making our own. I'm making my own sounds. And that's what he did. I think that's one of the things that took obsolete to the next level is that all these tweaks and different stuff you hear was nothing that you heard in a movie or a video game or anywhere else. This is, this is created fresh. Of course, the influence that industrial bands like Ministry that you've mentioned a couple times had on you is super obvious on here. But I was curious with, you know, you have the, uh, the agnostic front cover on the, the special edition with Freddie from Madball on there. Was there a New York hardcore influence on the band in general? I know that it maybe isn't as obvious in the music, but like in your ethics or, you know, the way that you approach well, things? Well, you know, I've been a fan of Agnostic Front from way back. You know, I've, I'm, I'm a music guy. I like different types of music all through the spectrum. And I think that for me, it came back from my childhood, from listening to all the different bands. I got, you know, four brothers and four sisters. And so everybody listened to something different. So as I was a kid growing up, I got everything you know, from the Beatles to ACDC to punk rock. I got it from all everybody that was, because we were all living in a house, to, you know, my, my family was all living in a house together. So everybody listened to something different. So however I felt that day, I could go to that room and be like, hey, I want to listen to this stuff. Or if I felt, you know, I wanted to hear something punk rocky, I'll go to my brother's room, you know, I'll go to this room and Everybody had something different. So I think that definitely kept my mind open. So, you know, as I became uh, a little older, older, as a teenager, I started listening. I started hearing bands like, you know, from Sex Pistols. You know, I went to the hardcore stuff to, you know, Agnostic Front, Gorilla Biscuits, Sick of It All and stuff like that. Right. So in 1993, our first U.S. tour, we get a tour with Sick of It All and Biohazard, two New York hardcore bands, right? And so that was an insane tour, and it was definitely an eye-opening because we're a metal band. You know, at heart, we're a metal band, right? We have so many different elements to the band, but there's a lot of metal there, right? So we used to just sit there and headbang. Going on tour with Sick of It All and Biohazard, these guys were running and jumping and very energetic on stage, and we're like, wow that makes for a great show, right? So we were influenced by them show-wise, like Sick of It All Biohazard. And then we got to Europe that same year in 1993, we were in Europe and we saw Agnostic Front playing at a few festivals that we played at. And we also played at one of their last shows in that year. We were just blown away by Agnostic Front, their energy, you know, Roger, the singer, just, was just insane live. We looked up to those bands because they, they knew how to entertain the crowd and get the crowd into it. So live-wise, we were influenced by them. When it came to making uh, D-Manufacture, we needed some B-sides. And so we just said, hey, let's do, in honor of Agnostic Front, let's do one of their cover songs and let's see if Roger will come down and sing on it. Well, they said Roger couldn't make it because he was gone. So we got the we got the best thing. We got his brother. We got his little brother to come sing on. So Freddie from Madball came down. He was like 17 years old. And uh, Vinny from from Agnostic Front, the guitar player, Stick. drove him. Yeah, Vinny Stigma drove him to the studio. 
And um, <laughs> that's because he's not old enough to drive. Yeah, drove him to the studio, and he came and he nailed it like that. It was like so quick. And we had we you know we had a day with them and had lunch and ate and hung out and bullshit and talked you know and uh, it was it was a killer experience you know and so that's Freddie from Madball on that track. So Replica is the single. You ha- you got zero signal on the Mortal Kombat soundtrack. Why was Replica the song that you chose to be? The, the song that represented the album? Because, well, it's kind of weird. Replica was the video, but Dog Day Sunrise was the single. Okay. So Dog Day Sunrise is what you sent to radio, but Replica is what you sent to video? That's weird as hell. Weird, weird, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why that happened that way, but it did. The band felt that Replica was the best song that could hopefully cross us over, right? But it did. It did get some exposure on sure. MTV and... You know, it was on the, it might've been on Headbangers Ball, definitely on 120 Minutes, but that was really about it. When Burton comes in and does that ad lib, were you all like, yo, that's sick? We were so into it because we were like- It's so cool. (laughs) Yes, it's just the that's kind of like starts the song that really kicks it off. Yeah. And like, okay. It was before people were putting scatting on their album. (laughs) Before, (laughs) just before that ad lib thing kind of became a thing, you know, now almost every vocalist has their own like noise or sound they make. That little fucking just thing you did created some attitude for the song. But for me, when I heard it was, you know, Celtic Frost. You know what I mean? They were more like a, ah, oh, you know, they were like a Viking growl or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it was more of a ooh that they did. And so, so when Bert did that, that's what it reminded me of, but it fit perfect. Huh. It became a hook. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that hula is, you know, as iconic as anything else on the album. So I think that that's it's, so cool. It's really funny because even though. It's a simple, like, for instance, we've always had something catchy about the band. There's always been catchy elements that stick with you, right? On our first record, we had a song called Crisis. And then we would hear bands during their sound checks play that. That, 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 that. And this is, it was just a simple little thing, right? That somehow resonated with people and musicians just... It was simple, but it was easy to play and catch. So when we did Replica, when everybody would want to play something for Fear Factory, that was what they played. So we heard it during sound checks. We heard it from people doing high school bands. We heard it everywhere. And everybody always did the, even if it was a drummer just playing, right? Who videotaped it, whatever. He'd go, ha, ha. Da, 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 da. We heard that everywhere. It became uh, just a catchy thing. Is there anything differently that you would have done in retrospect? Not that you have any regrets about the album, but is there anything differently that you would have done on the album knowing what you know now 25 years later? <laughs> Probably would have never hired Colin Richardson in the first place. I mean, sure, he had his part in it, right? I don't want to take anything away from his credit, but if it was me... I would have just, you know, used Reese and Greg the whole time. Did you ever consider you know I mean? asking Al Jurgensen to produce it? He was kind of producing albums at the time, and you were a big Ministry fan. No, we never asked. We never asked them. Um, I don't know why. 
but we never did. What is your favorite memory of making this album? <laughs> um, my favorite memory was here in, when Greg Greeley and Reese Fulber came to California and we started setting up and then started getting tones for the record. That's my fondest memory of making this record because it was like, you know, a breakthrough, you know, again, like I said, my dream was, I can, I can hear my dream being developed as it was going along. You know, I can, I was like, wow, you know, I'm not leaving the studio. I'm staying here every minute because it was like a dream for me being in that room with Greg Greeley and Reese Fulber and just hearing, hearing them talk about and create these sounds just blew me away. Those are the, those are the most fondest memories that I have of recording that record. I don't like the arguments that we had when we were recording in Bearsville, New York, but I also had some of the most best memories of my life. Run On Groove is reissuing a 25th anniversary of D-Manufacture on some really cool blue vinyl, like you said, part of your colors. Uh, three disc sets, got all the bonus tracks. We're actually remastering it from the actual analog tapes. It's Warner Brothers Roadrunner, right? And so Warner Brothers is actually down the street from my house, and they have a warehouse full of, you know, reel-to-reel tapes. And what they're doing in the process is doing a digital transfer. In other words, transferring the tapes on the, you know, on the digital. Transferring all the sessions, all the multi-tracks. They're in the process of transferring all that stuff. So we were able to uh, jump the line because you got to realize Warner Brothers has an extensive catalog, right? All the early stuff of so many bands from the 60s and so on that they're doing, that have priority over us, of course, right? So um, the guy from Run On Groove, a guy named Matt Block, becoming a good friend of ours. We've been working on the project with him, and he is able to get the sessions mixed, unmastered version, so we can actually master them for vinyl from the analog tapes. He also found in the vaults a live recording that we did back in 1996 uh, at the Ausfest in Phoenix, Arizona. So we were able to get those live multi-tracks and we were able to mix them for the album. And luckily the band sounded really good. <laughs> you can go to runoutgroovevinyl.com and pre-order that beautiful marble blue vinyl edition of D-Manufacture today. A really cool opportunity for fans of Stuff That Rocks. Thanks to Dino Cazares for talking to us about that album, and hopefully this Roadrunner living legend will be back soon to give us the mythology of Brujeria. While we wait for that return, next episode is going to align all of your chakras because we got the message of the Bhagavad! Shelter's RR debut, Mantra, with special guest Parmananda, or her you may know as the inventor of camo cut-off shorts, Porcel. Haribol! You can offer respectful obeisances on Apple Podcasts by leaving a five-star review, following me on Instagram at meetmepod and leaving a cool comment, and tune in every Wednesday for more canon. But until then, I'm Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meet, and yes, that's the best I can come up with. Bye! <laughs>